Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. My name's Ted, if I don't know you. One of the pastors here. Happy Mother's Day to, to all whom that applies. And uh, one thing we all have in common is we all have a mother. So, and I say that just to, because I'm learning this today, make sure you don't take your moms for granted, even if they're not with us anymore. My stepmom passed away in December, so it's kind of weird not going home today and calling her. So I'm having a little, a little overflow from uh, where I'm at this morning. But today we are continuing in our study of John's gospel. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, please. Today's actually the seventh and final sermon from the Feast of Booths, which began in chapter 7. So today we'll be uh, tying up a lot of things that we have learned along the way and hopefully applying those things into our lives as Christians. Now, uh, if you're new or visiting with us, um, every, every once in a while I like to come back to the, the main theme of this entire series in John. As you'll see on the screen, it is I am. I am looking at who Jesus says he is and the reasons why that is so crucial uh, when it comes to our lives as Christians and to what God's calling us to in life. And we're going to see that in a climatic fashion uh, today as well. And as I mentioned, coming to the end of the Feast of the Booths, uh, so an incredible opportunity, like I said, to, to go back and cover a lot of what we've learned uh, the past couple months. Now, if you look at the title, the title corresponds with the theme. I am being the theme in the title because of who you are, from our point of view, to Christ, because of who you are. And the reason I entitled it this um, or that is because of the fact that knowing who Jesus is, the fact that he is the God-man, is, is more important than just simply that fact. It, it also is important in terms of our lives as Christians to know that his deity, him being the Son of God, is so foundational to our salvation. If you get rid of one, the other goes away as well. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning and asking that question, how are we to apply this theology, this truth to our life? My goal on a Sunday morning isn't to knock it out of the park. My goal on Sunday is so that we can all wake up on Monday morning and have something that we learn today that we can instantly apply. That's street ready in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. We've talked a lot about the Exodus. Uh, John wants us to remember the Exodus when we read through his gospel because what this is, is the second Exodus. And so as we're going to see this great climatic verse at the end of our passage today where Jesus, with no reservation, declares that he is, when he says, I am, we should think of the burning bush. But in both of those accounts, Exodus 3 and here in John 8, God isn't just stating who he is for the fact of who he is. It's all tied to what he was getting ready to do, which was deliver his children from bondage. Old Testament, Exodus, of course, from Egypt. And for us, as we've learned the last couple weeks, from our bondage to sin. So very important that we make that connection as we, as we move through this. Now you'll see uh, uh, some words here that are going to be up on the screen these are words to a song that kept coming to my mind. In fact, it took me a while to figure out who it was, a song that I had heard. And these words, I think it's a good way to start, because what we're going to be doing today is, again, finding some ways in which we can apply this incredible truth to our lives. This is by a group called Relentless Flood. And let me read through, not sing, but read through. It's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard for me, but let me, let's read through this. 
Oh God, I've done it again. I've fallen on my face. I'm drowning in this shame. My mind will not erase. Anyone been there recently? So now I lift up my eyes to the one who is I am. For by his blood, I'm justified. My life, my time is not about me at all. My sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. It's not about what I've done. It's because of who you are. My debt has been erased. And that's what I want us to extract. That's what my prayers have been this week, that when we leave here today, because of who he is, because of of what he's done, we can take the truth of the gospel each and every day and live for his glory because of who he is and because my sins and your sins, if you're a Christian, are erased. Here's the big idea for this week that hopefully captures that and directs us into this passage. Today, the great I am, Jesus, demonstrates three essential characteristics of one who trusts, obeys, and follows God. What I did with the outline this week is I'm extracting the examples of Jesus Christ in this passage. We're gonna, we're gonna see the theology. We're gonna talk and exegete this passage, but, but I wanted to bring out the, what he demonstrates, his behavior in this moment as essentially he's continuing to be on trial before the Jews, and then for us to understand our need to follow his example as his followers in life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for, again, the the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your spirit into our hearts that we can cry, Abba, as you bring us through salvation, through your grace, into the middle of that beautiful triune relationship that is eternal, that we would abide in that. And of course, we know we have eternal life. Of course, we know we're going to do that forever, but we need to know that in this life as well because of our sin, because of the circumstances and the brokenness. Thank you for the example we have in Christ that yes, he came and he taught, but he also demonstrated what it means to follow you. Help us to learn from that. Help us to follow you. Let us leave here different today, whether we're saved or not saved. And I pray for those in this room who don't know you, whether it be our children here or children next door or even adults and teenagers in this room who don't know you, we pray for a harvest of souls that you would continue to plant, to water, and graciously bring children into the kingdom. Again, we thank you for this time. Be with us now as we continue to study your word. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so you'll see up on the slide behind me, We're going to read the first three verses, and what we're going to see here in this first passage and learn is how Jesus entrusts his reputation to the Father. So pick up with me in verse 48 of John chapter 8. The Jews answered him, are you not right, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. We'll stop there. Now, if you weren't with us last week, the first, uh, first verse here, the Jews' response, was in response to all of last week's passage, so the preceding 11 verses. And you can go back and listen to that sermon, but I'll just tell you now, it's really simple. Jesus three times told the Jews, essentially, that they were spiritually illegitimate. 
that Abraham was not their father, God was not their father. In fact, their father was the devil. So you can imagine these proud Jews who, who thought they were God's favorites, right? They were keeping the law and they were, they were perfect in their eyes, the reaction that they would have. And you see that in verse 48 um, as they're now responding to all that Jesus said to them. And we shouldn't be surprised that they called Jesus a Samaritan because what were the Samaritans known for doing but questioning the Jews' um, ancestry, if you will, right? That's how they got it. In fact, they would do it to each other. They did not like each other. You guys have known that. You've heard that before. But the Samaritans were essentially half Jewish and half pagan, and they lived just to the north of Jerusalem. And so uh, they would get in, in, into it a lot. So here's Jesus questioning their historical lineage, questioning their relationship to Abraham. Now, of course, he's talking spiritually, but essentially that's why they're calling him a Samaritan. And well, this really has nothing to do with the sermon, but I thought this was interesting. One of the things that Samaritans would do, I read this a while back, I think it was Josephus or some other historian, but when Herod's temple was under construction, you know what the Samaritans would do to be mean? It kind of makes toilet paper and egging a house not that bad. They would take a pig's carcass and throw it into the temple construction site. And that would shut all the construction down for weeks because they would have to cleanse and go through all the law to make everything clean again. So they had a horrible relationship. And so that's one of the worst things that they could say to Jesus. And they said he had a demon. Uh, Samaritans uh, would study the law, but outside of a rabbi's guidance. So anyone who studied the law, but not under a rabbi, was thought of as kind of uh, practicing witchcraft, if you will. And so meddling in the occult. And so that's probably where the demon reference is as well. And you see Jesus' response. He ignores the Samaritan part, but he says, I do not have a demon. Now, let me, let me take a poll here. On one side, you have Jesus, right? He is sent by God, teaching God's truth. And then on the other side, you have these religious folks who think they're perfect, and they want to kill the, the person who God sent to teach truth. Which one do you think probably has a demon? So there's irony here, right? He, they're saying he has a demon, and he makes it clear, I don't have a demon, but he's honoring his father. He's fulfilling the mission. He's doing what God sent him to do despite the opposition. One of my favorite verses, I know you, you know it well, it's 2 Timothy 4, where Paul tells us to be ready to preach the word in season and out of the season. This is out of season. The word's not popular here. And Jesus is faithfully teaching them lovingly the truth of God. And yet they want to kill him. They want to say he is a Samaritan and has a demon. They dishonor him. So we see that, that irony uh, come full to, to the full here in this passage. Very, very interesting. Now look at verse 50. Here's Jesus as, uh, as he continues to respond. And we're going to see this a second time in verse 50. He says, yet I do not seek my own glory. Why would he say that? Uh, we'll, he'll, again, he'll share more in a moment. But Jesus just made the comment that they dishonor him. And so really quickly, he wanted to make sure he wasn't trying to get their approval. He wasn't trying to get them to like him. He even says, it, I do not seek my own glory. And this is where we see that Jesus entrusted his reputation to God the Father. He felt no need to take vengeance, to get revenge. His complete faith and reliance was upon God for who he was. He did not need to stoop down to their level and sling mud back at them. And he tells them that. There is one who seeks my glory, and oh, by the way, he is not a judge, the judge. So important for us to see that. 
And not only to see it, but apply it. Look at this psalm up on the passage. Uh, This is kind of what it it reminds us of. The psalmist will often do this, where they'll ask for God to intercede and take vengeance on their account. Uh, The psalmist here, I believe it's David, says, Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. So like David there, Jesus is not taking the matter into his own Hands And so a little application here in this first section. The question I ask you is how important is your reputation to you in the circles with which you operate and live, in your church family, in your neighborhood, in your job place, right? Reputation is important. Integrity first. Our word, our name uh, is, is very crucial, and we, are, we take that seriously. At least we should. But we also have to understand that we have an enemy who's actively working against us. In fact, the meaning of the word devil is slanderer. So there are times when even though we have a good reputation and we're living with integrity first, we will get slandered. We will be accused of things that we didn't do. Uh, We will be described in ways that are untrue of our character. And in those moments, how will we respond? Will we stoop to their level? Will we become a self-apologist in defending ourselves? If we do that, we've lost. The enemy's won. We have to follow the example of Jesus here and entrust our reputation to God. And we're going to talk more about identity near the end, but that's where it's very crucial. We need to trust God. And what we have here demonstrated for us is one of the most confusing concepts in the Christian life, the fear of God. A lot of Christians don't understand what that means. Jesus is demonstrating for us what it means to fear God. And what that means is I care more about what God thinks than anyone else. And when we understand the fear of God and we learn to practice it, it protects us from the fear of man, where we don't allow the thoughts of others to control us. And we keep our eyes on God and trusting him with our reputation. Look at this passage from Paul in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay it, says the Lord. To the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if you do find that yourself in that situation where you're being slandered, where lies are being cast about you, pray for those people. Find ways to serve those people if possible. And you will turn things around so quickly. God will use that for his glory. And it's a beautiful way, again, to demonstrate the gospel. Because remember, when Jesus died for us, we were his enemies. An amazing, amazing thing to remember. So let's move on to the second section of this. We've seen that Jesus entrusted his reputation to God. The second thing we're going to see is how he kept God's word and then is teaching us at the same time that we too must keep God's word. Let's pick back up in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. 
If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. So when I say keep God's word, what does that bring to mind? What do you think of? If you're anything like me, you think of, well, what must I do? What's the checklist that goes along with that? How do I keep his word? Uh, What's my behavior going to look like? And that's not completely wrong. But as we're going to learn, the Greek word keep means something completely different than what we might think by looking at the English word. So we'll bring that out as we go along. But first, pay attention to verse 51. Verse 51 is a beautiful verse, one of the most important verses in all of chapter 8. And you'll see here he, uh, he, he uses what we sometimes see, actually often in John's gospel, that truly, truly, that double amen Truly, truly. Now, we must remember every single word that Jesus has to say in the Gospels is true and is very important. But when it comes time for him to say something that's even above that, he will often say, truly, truly. Or in other Gospels, he might say, he who has ears, listen up, right? Be ready to hear. This is important. So let's look at verse 51 and see why this is so important. He says, if anyone keeps, we'll come back to that word, but my word, we've talked about this before, the word, word, how John uses it, is a word that summarizes all of Jesus' gospel teaching. So his entire gospel message, the entire truth that he is teaching, all in one word. Because again, he is the word of God. Very important to see that. And then we see a promise. Usually the promise comes in something like, we will have eternal life. But here we see it turned around which is another way to to understand what salvation is, that we will never taste death. This one who keeps God's word will never taste death. So how important is is it that we understand what keeps means in this passage? We're going to get a little help from uh, George Beasley Murray. You'll see a quote by him on the screen. He says, one, this is a description of what it means to keep God's word. It's one who believes it, holds on to it, carries out its demands, and so lives by it. And it's the equivalent of abiding in his word. And I read that a couple times this week by scholars that keep is synonymous with the word we another one of John's favorite words, which is abide. So what does it mean to abide in God's word? It's simply more than just a behavior. It's a reality that comes with our salvation, that we have to understand, remember, and keep before us each and every day. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we get to the application. But before we move on, it's important because we're in the final section of chapter 8 that we string a few of these beautiful gospel promise passages together. You'll see a slide up there. This is one of what I would call the string of gospel pearls in chapter 8. So let's review real quick. Turn back to chapter 12. I'm sorry, Verse 12 of chapter 8, back on Easter, Robert preached that passage, and he spent half of the sermon exegeting just chapter 12 and did an excellent job of this incredible theological truth that governs the entire chapter. And you'll see it there. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then you skip ahead to verse 24. I told you that you, would die, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then you skip forward to 31 and 32. He says, if you, there it is, abide in my word, 
You are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then last week, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God, understands them. The reason why you do not hear him is that you are not of God. And then today, of course, verse 51, such an important string of theological and practical truth in terms of the gospel. We see once again, Jesus is the only way and the only truth to the Father. Now, you can imagine again the Jews' reaction to this. They think they caught Jesus in a contradiction. All right? Raise your hand if you think Jesus, when he mentioned death, was talking about physical death. All right? Raise your hand if you think he was talking about spiritual death. You guys are all smarter than the Jews. Isn't that cool? Now, obviously, we have the Holy Spirit. We understand. But they thought he was talking about physical death. And so all of a sudden, look, what, look at the reaction in verse 52. Now we know you have a demon. And by the way, they kind of use that like we might use mentally ill today. And I'm not joking. I mean that. That's how some people will use that. When you don't agree with someone or you don't like what they had to say, well, you're mentally ill, right? You're, you're crazy. You're nuts. That's kind of how they're using that uh, in this passage. But look what they say. They say, um, again, verse 52, we know you have a demon because Abraham died and the prophets died also. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Again, they're thinking physical death. And so the idea there is, hey, Abraham kept your word. The prophets kept your word. According to what you're talking about, this thing, your word, right? That's what you would think. And they're all dead. You're lying. So they think they've caught Jesus in a contradiction. They don't realize he's talking about spiritual death. And that fact that anyone who keeps his word will never experience physical death. And look at how they begin to bait Jesus in this passage. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who do you make yourself out to be? And look where Jesus comes back to for the second time in verse 54. Kind of like I know what you guys are doing. If I glorify myself, which you're trying to get me to do, my glory means nothing. Again, he wasn't out for himself. He was out to obey the Father. He entrusted his reputation to the Father. He was not going to take the bait. And then we'll see him, I think, got to be careful here. I think Jesus is going to be a little sarcastic here with these Jews, again, in a righteous sense. Look how he, uh, what he says to them. Remember last week, right? They, they were trying to say that, they were, that Abraham was their father, that God was their father. Keep that in mind as we continue here in verse 54. He said, It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You can almost see Jesus doing the quote thing, like kind of making fun of them, right? Because he already told them that the father is not their God. And they don't. And then again here in verse 55, he repeats that. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Again, that's referring back to last week where they continued to believe and think that God was their father. And he's trying to tell them, no, God's not your father. You don't even know him because the God you believe in doesn't exist. I know him. Listen to me. But they refused. So he continues in verse 55. And he says, but I do know him and I keep his word. And so we see there for the second time the idea of keeping God's word. And my friends, these last two clauses that Jesus says in verse 55, I do know him, I keep his word, those are the foundation 
for what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Those are the foundations for what it means to have a relationship, to know him, not religion, but to know God and to keep his word. So important for us to understand. Let's look at a few application points here as we continue. In regards to knowing him, look at this verse from John 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we think of knowing, that's the basis for salvation, the basis for eternal life. It's that relationship with Christ. But now let's turn our attention to what it means to keep his word. You see, pastors can often be guilty of speaking in what I call platitudes, where they'll say to Christians, especially in a conversation where a Christian might be struggling or having a hard time, they might just simply say, well, hey, keep the faith, or, or just trust God, or maybe keep his word, right? If we don't explain what that means, if we don't translate that into life, if we don't make it street ready, then what use is it? In fact, it reminds me of uh, the guy I used to take martial arts from, a believer, Christian guy, awesome guy. He actually got in trouble in his art because he was taking these moves that were mainly for tournaments and making them street ready. So if you were going to learn martial arts for self-defense, would you rather have something that could pass a tournament and get you a belt or something that you could use on the streets, right? We want street ready. And that's our desire here at the Church of Blue Ridge, that you can take these truths and on Monday morning put them into practice, put them into use. So let's talk about what it means to keep the word of God. One of the things that I like to share with Christians is, because I think we struggle with this, is learning to actually have faith in grace. What I mean by that is we say we believe these wonderful truths of the gospel, but then when sin comes or circumstances come, we get into a tailspin of doubt. And we don't realize it, but we're actually in those moments not trusting in grace. How do you know that you're not trusting in grace? Guilt. Whenever you sin, do you beat yourselves up with guilt? You've forgotten the gospel. The gospel tells me that when God the Father looks at me, he sees the blood of his son. He sees the righteousness of Christ. God is always pleased with his son. So when he sees you and I who are saved, he's always pleased with us regardless of what we've done. Now, that doesn't give us a license to sin. We know that. But in those moments when you sin, when you fall short, like I do on a regular basis, yes, repent to the Father. But then when you get up off your knees, it's as if it never happened. That's what it looks like to have faith in grace. So that's one way to learn to keep the word. The second is this. Again, that abiding principle, meditating upon the truths of scriptures. Uh, In the past hundred years, the church has, uh, for the most part, given into temptation to become a business and to entertain people and has gone without teaching some very key disciplines. And one of those is learning to meditate upon scriptures. It's not an Eastern thing. It's actually a very biblical thing where we're filling our mind with God's word. We're taking a passage and spending time pouring over it, understanding it, rehearsing it, memorizing it, and doing another discipline that's been lost, learning to pray it. Martin Luther taught his disciples how to pray scripture. Matthew Henry wrote a book on it. The Puritans have a name for it. It's called Pleading the Promises of God. Learn on a daily basis to take key scriptures and pray them. That's a way to keep God's word. For example, the armor of God. If you don't pray the armor of God, you can't use it. It's the only way to 
to use what Paul's giving us on a daily basis. So these are ways that we can learn to keep God's word. Let's move to the final section, the final thing we see from Jesus in this great passage. Again, he entrusted his reputation. He kept God's word. And the last thing we're going to see, he's certain of his identity. Now, of course he is. He's God. But for us, that's something we need to hear because we often forget our identity in Christ on a daily basis, if you're anything like me. So he's certain of his identity. So let's lead, read this concluding three verses of this great chapter. And by the way, this is the climatic part of this great chapter, starting, picking back up in verse 56. Jesus tells the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you can imagine their minds are exploding at this point, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, if I was going to put a meme slide up, which I've been known to do sometimes, I didn't do it this time, this would be where that boom with the nuclear mushroom cloud would be, right? That's, that's what just happened with this incredible climatic declaration. And we'll, we'll get to verse 58 uh, in a moment. Incredible passage, probably one of the most striking verses about the preexistence of the Son of God in all of John's gospel. And there's a lot of verses. We even started with one in the prologue. Incredible verse. But let's pick up in verse 56. Again, I think Jesus is kind of poking at him here a little bit, where he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now, of course, they take him literal, because that's the only way their minds can understand, because their, their hearts are blocked. We saw that last week. They can't bear to hear God's word. There's no room for it because of their rebellion and, the, and just their attitude towards Jesus. So we have to go back and talk about Abraham. What does Jesus mean there when he says, Abraham saw my day and was glad? Because if you go back, which I highly recommend, and read the Genesis account, chapter 12 through somewhere in the mid-20s, the story of Abraham, you don't see anything very specific about God revealing his plan of salvation with the Messiah to Abraham. So at very least, it's a general attitude. We can believe that Abraham, in some general way, understood that God had a larger plan of redemption associated with all that God was calling Abraham to do and these descendants he kept talking about, right? Now, where we can look is right there in Genesis 12, 3 with the Abrahamic covenant. You'll see it there, and then you'll see it several other times in Genesis. But the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant was that through Abraham, through his line, through his descendants, God would bless the entire planet, all mankind. And any theologian scholar you talk to says that is looking forward to the Messiah. It's one of the, the promises, the scarlet thread that sometimes you've heard about through the Old Testament. But specifically, I think there is a passage, possibly, that where God helped Abraham understand more specifically what one of his descendants would do. And I believe that could possibly be Genesis chapter 22, my favorite, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. You see a nice picture of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, if you know the story, it's where God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now, you think Isaac understood, I mean, Abraham understood what was going on? Isaac, we know, didn't understand what was going on. And here's a scene I wanted us to see. 
Because what's happening in this passage? God has just called Abraham to sacrifice his son, his one and only son. Does that sound familiar? God calls him to go to a place called Mount Moriah. Anyone know what would later be built on Mount Moriah? The temple. Which means somewhere close to that area, who would be crucified on a cross? What did both Isaac and Jesus carry up that hill that day? Wood for the sacrifice. Starting to see a connection here? And then when Isaac was, or Abraham was getting ready to follow through and kill his son, who stopped him? Who stopped his hand? If you look at a painting, you'd think an angel. But if you look at the text, it says, the angel of the Lord, who most, many Christian scholars, I believe this too. I'm not a Christian scholar per se, but, but I believe this too, that it was the second person of the Trinity. Who would the second person of the Trinity incarnate into a couple thousand years later? Jesus Christ. Think about that. If that's the case, Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, stopping Abraham, almost like to say, no, I got this. I got this. And then what did God faithfully provide? A ram caught in a thicket. The substitute for the atonement of our sins. Beautiful passage that screams the gospel. So with that in mind, let's return to the text. The Jews, of course, think he's talking literally. They make a comment about 50 years. 50 years was retirement age. Wouldn't that be great? Say amen if you wish 50 was retirement. (laughs) Amen. That's five years for me. But 50 was retirement age. So all they're simply saying, they're not indicating that Jesus is almost 50. They're just simply saying, hey, you're not even of retirement age yet, and you've seen Abraham, or Abraham's seen you. And this is where we get to verse 58, this beautiful verse. Jesus said to them, again, truly, truly, should get our attention right there, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we've seen the I am. Of course, there's the great I am passages, John 8, 12. We just read one. There's several other verses, of course, including two in John chapter 8 that we've already seen, where Jesus says, I am, in a similar way, but the English translators went and put a he in there, which isn't in the Greek. This verse is constructed in such a unique way that not even the English translators could stick a he on the end of it. This is what scholars call a divine formula, a divine revelation formula verse. And anyone ever heard of the Septuagint? It's the Greek version of the Old Testament written 200 years before Christ, a renowned, wonderful uh, version of the Old Testament. If you go to Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush passage, the same grammar and words are used when God gives his covenant name, I am that I am, to Moses. Very important. There, Jesus is very clear what he's trying to say. In fact, if you look at the word was, where it says before Abraham was, that's in the aorist tense, and that's very significant. What that means is, if you can imagine we're doing a timeline and we're taking pins and sticking it in certain places and tying strings to the pin, kind of like they do in detective shows. Imagine if we had a timeline with Abraham's name on it, so let's say 2200 BC, and we take a pin and stick it in, right? Abraham was, and then we tie a string to that pin and we're gonna go backwards in time to find the before part. We couldn't. It would go on forever. That's how this is structured. That's how the grammar in this verse. There's nothing else it could mean. In fact, you can look at it and see that an English teacher would put red ink all over this, right? It does, it's even hard, somewhat difficult to say, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is declaring who he is so clearly for us, so wonderfully, and it's important that we see that. 
today. So let's talk now about application. Oh, missed one thing. Verse 59. If there's any doubt of what Jesus may have been saying in verse 58, look at verse 59. How do you think the Jews took what he said? They knew exactly what he meant. They kind of skipped the whole arrest and trial thing and go right to capital punishment uh, with the stoning. So there's more proof for you uh, of Jesus clearly saying that he is Yahweh. He is God. Uh, one other note to, to point out here, it says Jesus hid himself. Actually, in the original language, it's in the passive, so it would be was hidden. Jesus was hidden. So uh, who knows? I like to see the way movies interpret some of these uh, little disappearing acts that Jesus does when, when they're about to kill him. But uh, again, God has uh, taken him away in some way. So a few application points, and then we'll be done. And, we, and you right, remember, uh, the point of this was being certain of his identity. And so I want to spend some time talking about that um, as well. Because again, deity matters, right? We talked about that with the burning bush. We talk about that here. He's not just stating who he is for that simple fact. It's all having to do with his deliverance of his children, the salvation of his people from bondage. So it's important that we remember that as we go out from here today. And then the, third, the second thing is identity. Who are you? Do you know who you are? That's a question that needs to be asked of us sometimes because there's a lot of things happening in our lives and in our own sinful hearts that rob us and cause us to forget our identity in Jesus Christ. Of course, I'm talking to those of you who are believers. And let's think about it for a moment. What are some of those identity robbers? Well, circumstances. It's hard. When we go through difficult circumstances, when we experience brokenness, it's so easy for those circumstances to define who we are, and we sometimes forget who we are in Christ. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's your title. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe it's who people think you are at work. Maybe it's the truck that needs a ladder to get into. I wouldn't mind one of those trucks myself, but what is it? Because we all struggle. There's not one person in here who's a Christian who struggles with this identity factor. In fact, it happens sometimes, and it's so subtle that we don't realize that we've forgotten who we are in Christ. We've gotten our eyes off the vertical, and like Peter, we sink because we're so focused on some other aspect, something else that's trying to define us or that we're allowing ourselves because of our sin to define us. And we need to remember who we are. Did Jesus know who he was? Absolutely. We need to be able to say that as well. We need to be able to stand and regardless of the consequences say, I am the blood-bought son or daughter of God the Father in Christ Jesus. Regardless of what you think, regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what it does to my future, and regardless of the brokenness that maybe I've experienced in this life. And there's so much freedom when we remember that. It's hard, but there's so much freedom. And Jesus gives us the shining example. And here is a great verse that helps me, because I, I struggle with my identity in Christ at times. Uh, I'm a pastor, but I'm also one of the sheep. That's the reality, the duality with being a pastor. But look at this verse from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Great reminder for us as we head in to Monday. Amen, right? Everyone love Mondays? One last thing I'll leave you with. John's full of irony. It's actually something he'll use 
as a, as a device to, to teach. And some of the irony I didn't cover in here that's really interesting is this. The Jews, Jesus had a lot, lot to say about his glory, right? Um, the Jews, ironically, by eventually killing Jesus, would bring him the maximum amount of glory that we still sing songs and praise him for today. And so with that in mind, I want to end our time together looking at one more, one more verse from Philippians 2, which reminds us of who this one is, this great I am. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't know this Jesus, we want to talk to you. Come find one of us this morning so that we can share with you. We can hear from you, but share with you uh, the gospel more accurately. Or if it's not today, let it be sometime this week. Call us, email us, text us. We will come, we will meet with you and talk about this great redemptive rescue mission of our glorious God. So I hope and pray that uh, all of us will have something we can implement into our lives tomorrow morning when we wake up. Something from what Jesus has demonstrated for us in this passage. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up. We're going to pray and then we're going to continue to worship God. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this great truth. We thank you as we end this uh, very, very important section of John's gospel, the heart of his gospel in many ways, that we end it in climatic fashion with this great truth. Because the fact is, Jesus, if you're not God, one, you're lying, and two, you could not have been the sufficient sacrifice that we needed on the cross, the perfect lamb of God. How fitting is, we, is it that we end with this great truth, this great reminder. But Lord, let these theological truths not just uh, live in the Bible collecting dust on our bookshelf. Let them live in our hearts. Let us rehearse the gospel to ourselves every single day. Let a day not go by that, that we don't forget who we are and the love that you have given us, that you would choose a wretch like me knowing full well the sinner I would be. Let us not believe the lies of the enemy when we sin. Let us not harbor guilt, but let us learn to have faith in the grace of the gospel that has saved us, that has cleansed us, that has made us new and given us a guaranteed inheritance in heaven, eternal life with you. Teach us all what it means to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, to keep your word. And let us again practice what we learned this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you demonstrated perfectly what it means to follow, obey, and trust the Father. Let us to go from this place and do likewise and also not forget our responsibility to share this gospel with those who don't know you and to pray for their salvation as well. Be with us now as we continue to worship and celebrate what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.